2: I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. This is a show where we are exploring what it takes to make meaningful change in a country that is as divided as our country has become. You know, I wanna start this week's episode by just acknowledging something which is uh, true for me, it's true for you. I did not get where I am today all by myself. I can tell you right now, I'm indebted to so many people who taught me, who guided me, who poured into me, who helped me. And I think it's important this season that I bring in some of the people who gave me their wisdom so they can share their wisdom with you. And that's why this week, I'm so glad I got a chance to sit down and talk to Ariana Huffington, who is actually one of my earliest mentors, one of my most consequential mentors, and also a good friend. Over the course of her career, she's gone the whole gamut. She started off as a young star on the political right. People forget she started off as a conservative and then she became a leading light on the left. Eventually, she's transcended politics altogether and she spends most of her time now just trying to get everybody to live a better life, no matter who you are. But over the course of that career, she's written 15 books. Almost all of them have been bestsellers. She started not one, but two uh, major iconic businesses. First, the Huffington Post and now Thrive, which is uh, dedicated to changing the way that we work and the way we live by ending the stress and burnout epidemic. That's really her new mission, her new calling. She's always thinking about how to make the world better and then pulling in key stakeholders from the business world, the political world, to make her vision a reality.
0: Uh, For the human operating system, downtime is a feature, not a bug. And that's where spiritual truth is validated by modern science. I always love the myth of creation in kind of every spiritual tradition. You know, God creates heaven and earth, and then she takes the seventh day off. Mm -hmm. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, she's omnipowerful and omnipresent and omniscient. She obviously doesn't need a day off. (laughs) Right, right. But she was sending us a message which we have completely ignored for centuries.
2: I promise you, no matter who you are, there is something you can learn from Ariana Huffington. If you're a young person trying to make your way in the world, if you're someone who's trying to navigate personal transformation or political transformation, if you're somebody who has a dream that you're trying to chase, you got a company you want to build, you got a book you want to write, there is so much you can learn from Ariana Huffington, who is just a master of self-discovery, self-reinvention, achievement, impact. So stay tuned for my conversation with Ariana Huffington when we get back.
3: Every day is a great day when you're not worrying about your appliances and home systems. And that's what you get with an American Home Shield warranty. With American Home Shield, you can protect your home and wallet from unexpected breakdowns like leaky faucets or faulty water heaters or wonky thermostats. Now that's something to celebrate. When it comes to protecting your appliances and home systems, don't worry, be warranty. For 20% off plans, go to ahs.com/wondery for more details see ahs.com/contracts for coverage details including limit amounts fees limitations and exclusions This episode is brought to you by Huggies Little Movers. Huggies knows that babies come in all shapes and sizes, and your tushies do too. That's why Huggies is the number one best-fitting diaper with its curved and stretchy fit and 12-hour protection against leaks. No matter what kind of butt you've got, you'll feel comfy while your baby's mushy little tushy wiggles and jiggles all around. Get your baby butt in the best-fitting diaper. Huggies Little Movers. We got you, baby.
2: Well first I just I'm just beyond pleased and and appreciative to get a chance to talk with you. We've known each other for a long time. And I think what I most love and admire about you is that you've been able to continue to transform, you know, based on wisdom, based on experience through different seasons of your life and we got to transform. That's the the scary thing about where we are right now is all these breakdowns ecologically, politically, spiritually. But, you know, breakdowns can lead to breakthroughs if you use them right. And I think you've been able to to be a consistent kind of personal transformational diva for a long time. And so what I really wanted to talk to you about was, you know, rewind the tape a little bit, start with your early life, and then kind of walk through where you are now as somebody who's really you know, basing your your work on, on wisdom and healing and, and all that kind of stuff. But you didn't start out that way. I mean, you started off as a young go-getter. You were a political star in your 20s. Uh, You were a published author. You were a major academic heavyweight. When you look back at your 20s, I mean, you were just going for it. Would the Ariana in her 20s have been able to do all that stuff if she were taking the advice of Ariana today, which is a lot more about balance?
0: So, Van, I actually don't use the word balance because it doesn't really exist, The truth is that um, life and work are kind of integrated. And um, sometimes you have a little baby now, maybe your baby is sick, that's going to be your priority. You have a big project deadline, that's going to be your priority. If we expect life to be like 50-50 every day, (laughs) it's just not going to happen. I think for me, the key is when I do what I need to do to be fully recharged, I'm the best version of myself. So unquestionably, I would have been more effective and had more joy in my life if I knew and practiced that um, in my 20s. And that's why I feel so passionate about the work I'm doing now and helping people abandon the collective delusion that in order to succeed, we need to be always on That burnout is the price of success and achievement. And uh, what is so interesting is that even if our goals are not personal but collective, like social justice or the crusading work you've been doing for years, when we take care of ourselves, we are going to be more sustainably successful at that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think it's, um, it's a paradigm shift. Uh, As you know, um, I've been with my face against the furnace (laughs) for uh, decades. You know, and it's it's hard to give yourself permission to back off. You think to yourself, you know, look, you know, these kids are in prison; these folks in Appalachia are losing everything. You almost feel like you don't have the permission or the right, even, to take care of yourself. And you know, you know how that feels. And but what you're saying is that. That's exactly the wrong way to think about it.
0: Exactly. And all the science makes it very clear. And we see it from elite athletes that, you know, if Tom Brady didn't get enough sleep and didn't spend the night doom scrolling or tick tocking before a game, he would not be winning Super Bowls in his 40s, period. Scientifically proven. And he talks about it. So we can look at Elite athletes, as an example, because we have the score in front of us and they now tell us uh, what they are doing to take care of themselves.
2: A lot of times, I mean, I, I think the culture doesn't help in any movie. There's somebody, later, they're not doing well, then they show the montage and they're just working their butts off and they're doing 100 push ups, they're running up the stairs or whatever, and then all of a sudden they're fitting perfect and everything is great. And I tell people all the time, your life is actually the montage. It's a daily effort to try to do better. And what they never show in the montage is taking a nap. <laughs> what <When Yeah. laughs> they never show in the montage is getting a full night's sleep. You know, it's all this efforting. And I think the culture, um, so, therefore, you wind up thinking that's how, you, how you're going to be successful. How else could you be successful if you didn't kill yourself?
0: And also, neither of us is talking about not working hard. Right. And we are talking about working smart and not working with diminishing returns. You know, Van, I actually um, try to understand how come for decades we've been living something that is scientifically false. And it goes back to the first industrial revolution when we started revering machines. And the goal with machines is eliminate downtime. That's right. (laughs) And then the goal with software is um, have 99.999% uptime. Uh, But the human operating system is different. Uh, For the human operating system, downtime is a feature, not a bug. And that's where um, spiritual truth is validated by modern science. I always love the myth of creation in kind of every spiritual tradition. You know, God creates heaven and earth and then she takes the seventh day off. Mm-hmm. Why? <laughs> right, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Clearly she's omnipowerful and omnipresent and omniscient. She obviously doesn't need a day off.
2: <laughs> right right.
0: But she was sending us a message which we have completely ignored <laughs> for centuries.
2: You know, the other thing I think is um, the idea of, of change and transformation, like personal change and transformation, um, you've been pretty good at that. You start off politically conservative then for a while you were, you were more in the center. And then uh, for a while you were progressive. And now I think you're really, you've transcended all of that. And I think you're trying to bring health and healing to the whole of civilization. Th- that's tough. I just wonder, can you talk about, just from a personal point of view, which I, don't, I haven't heard you talk about much recently, those those steps and those stages, like what, what gave you the ability to change your mind and to break out of your your tribe? I mean, now, I mean, the idea you're going to leave your political tribe and go to some other tribe, like you're going to get killed on both sides. I mean, there's a lot, but we're going to have to be able to break out of these tribal bubbles. You've been able to do that over and over again. Uh, talk about that a little
0: bit. So first of all, it's interesting to look at what kind of a conservative I was. Mm-hmm. I was a pro-choice, pro-gay rights, pro-gun control conservative. Mm-hmm. And what made me a conservative was my passionate belief, which I still have. I still hold that we cannot just delegate our compassion to government, and that our compassion and our service have to be part of our own lives and of and what we bring our children up with. And uh, what made me change my mind is that I realized that that, although still an incredibly important goal is very hard to achieve and that we simply need the raw power of government appropriations to achieve a lot of the collective goals that we have. So it was a really very simple fact of looking at results. And then I actually never thought, oh, you know, I'm not going to change, even though I know (laughs) my old position was wrong because I'm going to be attacked. I feel very blessed that I had an amazing mother. Mm. Uh, She had just died when you and I met um, in uh, 2001. And uh, she always brought me up to be not fearless in the sense of not experiencing fear, but fearless in the sense of not letting my fears get in the way of what I did.
2: I remember... Because you know, I didn't know you when you were initially making that transition. And what I think was so powerful is that you put your body where your mouth was. You weren't just giving speeches about what poor people should do. Uh, you went and you stood with women who were homeless and who were going through things. Um, but you know, you said something I want to circle back to. You said spiritual, and you know, you have kind of come out of the closet to a certain extent uh, as a spiritual person. I mean, you're a business person. Drive is a is a thriving business. Uh, you figured out a way to use the power of of the market to get these ideas out and taken seriously. But the core of the core of the core of who you are, there's a spiritual uh, quest that you've been on since I've known you. And can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's maybe a little bit safer to talk about it now. But for a while, you, know, you start talking about spiritual stuff. Somebody might call you cuckoo. You you never cared about that. You talked about it anyway. Talk about the spiritual dimension of
0: your life. So. I feel very blessed that it's always been there. When I was a teenager, I went to India and studied comparative religion at Shantaniketan University that was founded by Rabindranath Tagore. And um, then after my second, my after my first book was published when I was 23 and it was a big success, I locked myself up and wrote a book. <laughs> which had a spiritual dimension for our collective lives. Don't worry, uh, Van, if you haven't read it, because nobody has. Uh, (laughs) it, It was rejected by 37 publishers. And it was finally published after I had run out of money and, I was lucky enough to get um, a loan from Barclays Bank (laughs) that kept me going until I finally got an acceptance. You know, the book, I think, sold 3,000 copies, so it was never successful, but it was really important for me to express how I felt. Then I wrote biographies of Picasso, Maria Callas, a book on Greek mythology, and then I returned to the topic and wrote a book called The Fourth Instinct.
2: Right.
0: And by by that... What I meant and mean is that a lot of our psychological collective conversation has been around the first three instincts, survival, sex, and power, you know, the instinct for power, status, etc. But the, you cannot understand or explain human behavior throughout history without the fourth instinct, which is the instinct. For meaning, for transcendence, for something larger than ourselves. You cannot understand Gentiles risking their lives to save Jews, or the redemption project that you did, or all the work that's being done that's not about the first three instincts. I think it's so important to recognize that because I also think now that the mental health crisis that is accelerating and that finally we're paying real attention to is also fundamentally a spiritual crisis. And that the deaths of despair, people Mm -hmm. are so surprised that there are more deaths of despair among people who are not really at the poverty level Mm -hmm. because they are looking at it as an economic uh, crisis. And of course, there are huge economic problems. But there is also a fundamental spiritual crisis that we need to address.
2: Yeah, when you talk about death of despair, you, you mean... You know, suicides, people who are overdosing, that kind of stuff. And and it's not as closely correlated as you might think to, to economic poverty. There's obviously economic poverty, but there's also a spiritual poverty. I've been in communities where people were quite poor, but they had a sense of meaning. They had a sense of belonging. They had a sense of purpose. They had rituals. They had traditions. They had fun. And I've been to other places where, you know, everybody's locked up in their homes with lots of stuff, lots of gadgets, lots of toys, lots of, you know, cars in the the car. And just no soul, um, no beating heart of, of love and life and celebration and people sinking into real despair. And I think that as we are going through this transition, I think we're... We need a new human civilization that is more at peace with itself and the earth and frankly more worthy of both the term human and the term civilization as we go forward. And as we go through that process, there's stuff to hospice and there's stuff to midwife (laughs) and all that. I mean, anytime I, I was there for the death of both my parents, I was the only one in the room both times, and I was there for the birth of all three of my children. And anytime you're close to birth and death, you're close to something deep and powerful. You can call it God, you can call it spirit, but you're close to something that's not the same stuff that's there when you're eating a cheeseburger on the go at the airport. You know, there's something else that's present. And I think we need that the presence of that in our society more as we say goodbye to some things and we try to welcome new things. And I think, you know, the spiritual dimension of your work is is that much more important to me.
0: I feel it's becoming more and more important to me, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, and interestingly enough, I think this is one of the silver linings in the pandemic. You know, the pandemic has been a time of incredible grief and losses. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, historically, uh, we know that plagues and pandemics have made people ask some of the fundamental questions. Why are we here?
2: Right, right.
0: How am I going to spend my limited time on earth? And come more face-to-face with death. And, you know, if you think of it, Van, we have, if we're lucky, 30,000 days to play the game of life. So uh, how we spend those 30,000 days depends on what we value. And if we are disconnected from our spiritual essence... It is so much easier to value things that will never really fulfill us, and I think there is a collective longing to stop living in the shallows, to stop measuring our lives and our status by how many likes we have and and um, how amazing is our vacation uh, on in the south of France, so all the things that Instagram and so many of the social media have made so much more prevalent in our lives, you know, living our lives through comparing ourselves. Again, as Brittany Barnett said on her podcast, it's really about looking at what's happening in people's lives and being moved to action, not just being moved to tears.
3: Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.
2: You know, I, I do wonder, you know, uh, you were in the political arena. I remember you did the shadow conventions back in the days. And if you go to the Democratic convention, there'd be like a shadow convention. People like John McCain and other folks, or you go to the, the Republican convention, you, have, you would have a shadow convention. You were actually trying to pull people together <laughs> um, away from the foolishness in both parties. Even uh, back in the 90s, you, you ran for governor. What do you, as you look at the people who are now in political positions and you think about all you've learned and all you've done, you think about what, what science now tells you, I mean, if you applied some of these principles to politics, I mean, what, what would change? Not for the voters, but for the actual people who are, to your point, in the arena in a different way they gotta, They got to get reelected. They're going to get beat up on the, the, the national news. They might trend if they say the wrong thing on social media. But they've got to somehow find a way to bring this country together and move it forward. How, does, how do you apply some of this wisdom to the political arena where things are really polarized, not wise, none of that stuff?
0: Well, I remember actually, Van, um, you sitting down and watching with me uh, all the Eye on the Prize documentaries. And yes. I, I'm sure you had watched them many times before. And it is kind of amazing. I think what is missing from modern politics is the eye on the prize. When I organized the shadow conventions in 2000, I focused on three major issues. One of them was the growing inequalities. 2000, it's 2022 and things are much, much worse. The other is actually a little better. It was the, um, the failed war on drugs, which you remember in 2000 yeah. was yeah. so prevalent and horrific and militarized. And, uh, and the third, it's so bad we're not even talking about it. <laughs> that was campaign finance reform.
2: Right. Well, <laughs> so what—, what, what? <laughs> <laughs> one out of three. One out of three. That's, that's still pretty good.
0: <laughs> so now I suppose if we're doing them now, we would have included climate change. Absolutely. Absolutely. But basically, the issue of the growing income inequalities, if you see that as the eye on the price, how do we focus on that? It's really about how do we bring people together? And I consider these issues beyond left and Right. Uh, You don't have to be a lefty to believe that growing income inequalities are incredibly destabilizing. Oh, yeah. If you care about law and order, I don't think there are many things worse than having um, people who are angry and hungry and homeless. And we know what that looks like around the world. So there's so much common ground. And I feel that if really the goal was to solve problems around the biggest challenges we're facing, we would act very differently.
2: It's funny just thinking thinking back. You know the the impact that I think you had on me and a bunch of other other people. Uh, you know, I think that was the first time the the shadow conventions where I saw real leadership to try to bring people together across party lines to get something done on things that were really bigger than politics. And, you know, in in some ways, you know, after that, I wound up working on some of the early green job stuff and have continued. So, you know, you just never know. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's so important. It's important, I think, for people to follow your example of doing what you feel called to do in that moment. Um, And you've been so prescient. I mean, I remember, you did the Huffington Post. I mean, the blogosphere wasn't the blogosphere as we know it. There were people had some blogs, <laughs> but nobody was talking about the sphere. <laughs> um, and you were able to use your incredible convening power to convene people, not just in person, but now for the first time online, and to host a conversation online. That was really radical at the time. And uh, and now in 2016, when you started Thrive, talking about mental health, talking about uh, per- human performance talking about, you know, burnout and, and it being optional, that wasn't happening, you know, five, 10 years ago. So you continue to somehow be you know, just ahead of the culture, kind of getting us where we need to be. Um, and I, I appreciate you for doing that. I mean, to what do you attribute that? Because, I mean, it's one thing to do it once, you know, if you, you know invent Google or something once, but to do it over and over again, to what do you attribute that?
0: Um, I really think a lot of it comes from my mother um, bringing me up, believing that failure is not a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, she used to say, "Failure is not the opposite of success; it's a stepping stone to success." Because every time you try something new, you may fail. It's, and if that's and if that's a big problem for you, then you're going to play it safe. Yeah. And wow. uh, I remember when I launched the Huffington Post, the day one, I, I remember a review which I have learned by heart that said the Huffington Post is an unsurvivable failure. It is the movie equivalent of Gili, Heaven's Gate, and Ishtar all rolled into one. In case you don't remember, they were all big flops. Yes, yeah, I remember. So it was. We got terrible reviews at the beginning. A year later, the woman who wrote a review reached out to me and said, I was wrong, half post has become an essential part of the internet and can I write for you? And that's what's so important. I said of course, because the other thing my mother had taught me is not to hold grudges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not because I'm a I'm such an amazing person, but because it's the it's the most draining thing you can do for yourself. And you know then thrive i so there I was you know twenty sixteen I had a big global media company in eighteen countries, uh, but I knew that my heart wanted me to do something else and not just raise awareness around how we work and live and avoiding burnout and reducing stress and prioritizing our mental health and connecting that to our performance. But helping people do it. You know, I had already written two books on the subject, Thrive and the Sleep Revolution. I was covering these issues exhaustively on the Huffington Post. But I wanted not to help people change behaviors. And, you know, changing behaviors is the hardest thing in the world. And I wanted to do it. And in order to do that, I needed a different company that was a product technology company that brought together all the latest science of micro steps and storytelling to help people change behaviors. And, and I remember being nervous about it. I was basically giving up a real success a to go platform, start too. again, you know, literally rent a one room and start raising money <laughs> and, and start Not again. Advisable.
2: <laughs> Not advisable.
0: Not <laughs> advisable. Yeah. Um, and, and, I'm so happy I did it, not because Thrive has worked, but because I do, I'm do. i doing what I love. And, uh, and putting my love into what I'm doing means that whatever challenges I have to face every day, it's just seeing the impact on people's lives makes it all worth it. And also, you know what, um, Van, I now have more hope that real change will come from businesses and from uh, civil society and people on the ground and from politics. Again, that's not to give up on politics. The power of real political change is so extraordinary and unmatched. Uh, But it can't be our only focus anymore.
2: I I feel the same way, especially in the African-American community. So much of our mythos of change has to do with Washington, D.C., um, it was the march on Washington. It wasn't the march on Wall Street. It wasn't the march on Silicon Valley or Hollywood. is the you know march on Washington. You know, Thurgood Marshall went to Washington. You know, it's uh, you know, Obama went to Washington. So there's this huge, huge presence I think for Black folks of you know if we can just get politics right. That's why you see Black people standing in long lines to vote and you know every election. But you know there's other there's other places of power in the country. You know there's finance, uh, you know, Wall Street. That's a, a corner of power. Um, that needs some some soul and needs a, a calling to a, a deeper purpose. Certainly, Silicon Valley and technology, and of course, Silicon Valley now is everywhere—from Austin to Boston. But that—that's a whole dimension that needs. We need as much wisdom as data <laughs> in the technology space, and that's work to be done. And certainly, Hollywood and LA are where uh, we both spend a lot of time. The world is is made of stories, and stories that we tell. If you want new facts, you need new fiction. It, it, it really does. And you can move the culture. You can move the whole society if you just change the stories you tell children. So there's so much more, I think, to my sense of what's possible and what's necessary than just politics. And I think that's, that's what I love about your evolution. You know, you went through a lot of political transformation, and but that was actually just the surface. Underneath was a human transformation. <laughs> and now you're making that available to everybody. You've been... Making your heart and your mind and your your spirit available uh, to make the world better for a long time, and uh, I did not get a chance to meet your mom, but I know the impact she had on you and
0: your sister. She would have loved you. Yeah, and wow. um, and I I'm, I feel so much of my work and writing are so full of her, and and. I find as we're working with companies around the world now, including some of the biggest companies like Walmart and Accenture and Salesforce and CVS, what I prioritize is helping people in the front lines. You know, a lot of the wellness work Mm -hmm. tends to be more focused on people who've been privileged to be able to work from home during a pandemic. But the vast majority of people around the world didn't have that privilege. They had to show up. They had to show up in stores and in factories and in hospitals. And so that's a big priority for us. And through the combination of what we call micro steps, you know, small daily incremental steps and no judgments. And then capturing the stories. It's so moving. I mean... At Walmart, we also give financial rewards when people participate in a challenge, either to lose weight or to um, uh, improve uh, their mental health, whatever challenge they pick. And the biggest award once a year is $50,000, which is very significant for people who are largely on minimum wage. And the woman who won it this year wrote a Facebook post. She wrote how... Um, why winning the Thrive Challenge Prize is different than winning the lottery. She said, because it's changed the way I live my life. And her job is so hard. Her job is to stock shelves in a Walmart store from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. But she said she lost 34 pounds. She found a new kind of joy in everything she's doing because her health is so much better. And she said, through little things, she said they started cooking, she and her husband, rather than going to fast food restaurants. They started buying different things. She said, if you came to my kitchen now, it's not full of candy and chips. I actually have fruit and almonds. And, and she walks us through these micro steps, these small daily changes that got her to a new life. And I feel if we can help people, really go upstream and help themselves before they get sick. I mean, it's also important if you are sick because if you sleep better and hold better thoughts in your head, you'll you'll get well faster. But we have a huge job which the healthcare industry has completely abandoned. The whole emphasis is on the last mile of care. And a lot of great things have been done there. But Really the fundamental transformation is going to happen in the first mile. So that's kind of my passion right now because if we can make this difference in people's lives, we can transform how they show up in their communities and I think that's going to have a big impact also on politics
2: mm-hmm. yeah well I just love talking to you and it's just so amazing um, you know I, th- I think you're right if if, if we have a healthier, citizenry, we probably will have a healthier uh, politics. And I, I was going at it the other direction for a long time. We could just get these policies changed and everybody will be happy. And it turns out... It's, not, it's not
0: either or. We just it's can't wait. Or. We can't wait yeah. until all these policies are changed. Yeah, we have it, to it do goes. that hard work while also working um, to change things every day.
2: Yeah. Well, look, I, I appreciate you so much, Um uh, you've been a huge, huge I, can, I can never, I would put you in the top five people in my life, besides my parents, uh, who who changed my life and who showed me what was possible when um, I got a chance to, as you were, you know, going through all the stuff you're talking about, getting a chance to know you, and sometimes get a chance to be you know, right there in the room. I remember one time uh, you called, uh, I believe it was Gorbachev, or maybe Gorbachev called you. I was like, how is that even possible? Like, God, this, And then uh, you called Colin Powell. I'm like, could, is, Colin Powell has a phone and a phone number that somebody could dial. Like, I was so, so new to all. I was like, how is it even possible? And you were just constantly trying to figure out ways to bring the best people together to get good stuff done. And um, some stuff is, is is better known than others about you. But uh, I've seen a good chunk of it, and it's influenced me. And just to have you on the podcast, we could not have completed the first season of this podcast without Ariana Huffington. And I ben, appreciate having
0: thank you. you so much. You know, you taught me so much, mm-hmm. and um, your passion, but also your daily hard work to make fundamental change has definitely made the biggest difference on my life and my goals, So thank you. And thank you for Uncommon Ground. I'm absolutely loving it.
2: We see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so beautiful.
0: Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp to welcome them to the Golden Door.
2: As you can tell, Ariana and I go way back. I've just got so much respect for her, so much love for her. I would not be where I am today without her. I wouldn't be who I am without her. I actually met Ariana back when I was a grassroots leader and activist in Oakland, California. And she was already very, very well known at that point. But she found out about the work that I was doing trying to help urban youth. And she started inviting me to conferences, uh, leadership summits. And I got introduced to a whole different level of change maker. You know, back in those days, her real superpower was her ability to build these relationships and networks of people. This is like before you had Facebook and social media, you had to actually do it. You know, you pick up the phone and call people or or even page them and try to get them together. And she would get people over to her, her home from both political parties, all walks of life, and she just get people talking. And that power of connection and communication that she represents is something that really changed my life. And just watching the way she worked, it just gave me a whole new idea of how power and influence can really work and how positive changes can actually get done. And so today I, I try to do some of what she does in my own work, you know, talking to people at the top, talking to people at the bottom, talking to people on the left, talking to people on the right, talking to people in the jailhouse, talking to people in the White House, just trying to figure out some way to bring people together. And really the first person I saw do that was Ariana Huffington. And here we are years later and outwardly, Ariana, you know, she's changed a lot. You know, she used to be a Republican. Now she's a Democrat. Uh, she used to run one kind of company. Now she runs another kind of company. But at her core, with all that change, she's still the same person. Uh, First time I talked to her, she talked about her mom. And today she talked about her mom. You know, she's got that consistency. And, you know, I just find it really inspiring. A lot of people are afraid to try new stuff because they think they're going to change too much in the process. I think what Ariana Huffington teaches the country and teaches the world is that you can change and you can transform but you always keep the best parts of yourself. You might lose some of the bad stuff, hopefully, but you're gonna keep the best parts of who you are. And I'm glad that we still have the best parts of Ariana Huffington. She's got magic, she's got genius. I'm so glad she's a part of the Uncommon Ground community. That's it for this week's Uncommon Ground. I'm Van Jones, see you next week. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Taylor Williamson, Adesua Agbonile, and Lindsay Credible. Our managing producers are Laura D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for the show is led by Alice Zoe andy lichtenfell didier Moraes, chantel muentes and sam petherbridge special thanks to Jana carter alex john burns seven mcdonald drew swinderman brianna jones eric carter trevor mcneil carrie mccarron joe mcmillan steph walkeen vanessa redbert ty jacobson marshall Louie and chris jackeman
0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at
1: wondery.com slash survey. Hey, this is Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, where twice a week I speak to meditation teachers, top research scientists, and even the odd celebrity about how to do life better. And on a recent episode, I spoke to the huge global pop star Dua Lipa about how she does her own life. What are the non-negotiable practices and principles for her?
3: Those are just like life things that I like to live by. Uh, Never do the same job twice and never leave today's thing for tomorrow.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Those are really important things.
1: The episode is uh, incredible and actually quite practical, especially when it comes to creativity. Is it true that in typical overachiever fashion, you wrote 97 songs for this record?
3: Yeah, I I wrote 97 songs. We wrote a lot of songs, but not all of them are good. You know, that's the other thing. Like, I have to write myself into a good idea.
1: To listen to this episode and more, follow 10% Happier on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.